There are times in life when you desperately need an expert. Do you know a good plumber? Can you refer me to a good doctor? It's not advice we want to hear, but someone may say to you somewhere along life's journey, you need a good lawyer. And it's always a good expert that we want, isn't it? No one ever says, I'm looking for a mediocre lawyer. Or, do you know of a below-average mechanic? When we need an expert, we want the best. One whose expertise will provide the ideal help that we require. But oddly enough, in all of these phrases, I think they're familiar to us on a lot of different levels. Oddly enough, I've never heard anyone say, I need a good priest. Never heard that phrase. For starters, I think few people have any sense that a priest could possibly prove helpful. And even for people with some understanding of a priest's role, it seems that just any priest will do. Hear my confession, sign me some Hail Marys, and I'm good to go. Any priest will do. I'd like to suggest to us today to assert as we've gathered here in the name of Christ, that whether you know it or not, you need a good priest. Face a risky surgery and you are keenly aware that you need a good surgeon. No one needs to instruct us. Land in legal trouble and no one will need to convince you that you need a good attorney. But in a far greater sense, Each one of us needs a good priest. As we continue to work our way through the book of Hebrews, we've come today as a church to chapter 4 at the end of the chapter and verse 14. In these verses, 14 through 16, we learn not only that we need a good priest, but who that priest is and how we should respond to him. In verses 12 and 13, which we looked at last week, they reveal why we need a priest in a succinct way. We could say much more. But notice verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's word, which expresses His will, lays bare the thoughts, the intentions that inform our daily actions. This word exposes our selfishness, our pride, our greed, and our lust. It convicts us of lying and stealing, of deception and gossip. It teaches us that we, in a fundamental way, fail to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and fail to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Verse 13, in light of that searching word, we are taught, verse 13, that no creature is hidden in His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The searching eye of God sees everything we do, knows everything that we think, and He will meet us at the end as judge and jury. So, 
putting it together, God issues his law. We break that law. He will meet us and hold us accountable in the end. And so we say again, you need a good priest. We need a good priest to stand between us and the judgment of God that we deserve. In God's mercy, the terror of verse 13 gives way now in verse 14 to the good news. We find here just a simple, straightforward statement of truth that Jesus is our great high priest. Verse 14, since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, namely, Jesus, the Son of God. With bold assurance, the author asserts here that we have a great high priest. We do not need to search on the internet. We don't need to ask a friend for a suggestion. We have a good priest. In fact, he is the great high priest. It's a way of saying that he is the supreme, the exalted, the transcendent priest. In fact, the chapters that follow will work this out to say that he is the last great priest. Who is he? Jesus, his humanity, the Son of God, a reference to his deity. Now notice the word since then here in verse 14. The book has already developed the theme of Christ's ascension to heaven's throne and his exaltation as the eternal son who does all that the Father does. This has been worked out, which is why we have since then. It's been worked out in the pages of this book to this point. Let's just review it briefly. As you enter into this book, we are taught first that Jesus is the eternal creator and sustainer of the universe. He is God, very God. Secondly, we learn as the second chapter begins that Jesus took on human flesh, becoming man, very man. A human nature added alongside his divine nature without admixture in the one person of Jesus Christ. Why did the eternal Son of God take on human flesh? He did so in order to pay the actual penalty of our sin in our behalf. That is to die for us, to defeat death by rising from the grave. So God in his eternal counsels at the perfect time the son took on flesh to die in this way. And the kind of summary phrase for that here in verse 14 is that he passed through the heavens. This means that the risen Christ ascended to the Father's right hand but I think a little background provides us some better understanding of what that means that he passed through the heavens. It's a reflection of of the old covenant system in which God directed through ritual sacrifice Israel to draw near to Him. And we think particularly of the Day of Atonement, one day per year, in which the high priest would pass through the outer gate of the tabernacle complex into the courtyard. There's a lot here, and if you're not familiar with this background, there's more that can be done fairly quickly, but just not what we can spend time here today. But that, that picture of that tent is looking through it. There would have been covered uh, with material. But the priest would pass through, first of all, the gate into this complex. Only a priest could enter into that gate. You see these kind of white-robed priests that are serving there 
only they could enter into this complex. Next, with the blood of sacrifice, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would enter through that first entry into the holy place where there is the holy furniture inside each with high symbolic meaning. And then the priest would pass into that inter in that inner sanctum where that veil, there would have been a a large curtain there that veiled off the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was found and over which the presence and glory of God hovered. Here, that high priest would place blood from sacrifice on the mercy seat, the seat on top of this box, this ark. We don't know precisely. You see a thousand different depictions of what the angels look like as we don't know exactly how they were configured. But here just a picture applying the blood to that mercy seat was a symbolic way of bringing the people before God through sacrificial atonement to cleanse the nation from sin so that she could continue another year in the presence of God. And then having passed through each of these barriers, the high priest would pass back out. And more symbolism continued, which we won't get into here today, but it was a way of cleansing the people. Now, with that background, Jesus passed through the heavens. There's the connection there. Not simply into this holy place and holy of holies in the tabernacle, but he passed right into heaven itself, which this whole tabernacle system was all a picture of the greater presence of God where Christ himself with his own blood passed and represented his people in sacrifice. So now operating under a new covenant, Jesus enters the presence of God in heaven, applies his own blood, providing this forgiveness, and it's this that the author means when he says he passed through the heavens into the very presence of God. All of this will be worked out in the rest of the book. But perhaps for you, and maybe especially those who might visit with us today, you say this is a lot to take in. There is a lot here. There is some depth here. But let's just break it down into basic elements. Why does one need a high priest? A priest advocates for sinners before God's throne. One day, the Scriptures teach repeatedly that you and I will stand in eternity before God to answer for our lives. To answer indeed for the sins that we have committed against the law of God. We will stand there in eternity to answer before Him. Jesus is the priest who is willing to stand with you. Who is willing to represent you. Who has paid the penalty of sin by dying in the place of the sinner. And when we come to embrace this truth and make it our own then we know we needed a good priest. He is that priest. He will stand there to meet us at that throne. But beyond just the future, there's also the present. And as we come to understand that this is who Jesus is, 
there are some obvious responses that are not only appropriate, but are essential. And we see then secondly, by way of response in these passages, that we must say, to, to say it in summary form, we must rest in Jesus, our great high priest. That idea of rest is something we've considered here in chapter 4. But that to come to rest in this great high priest involves two ideas here in these verses. First of all, we must hold fast to our confession of Jesus. This follows most logically. Verse 14, at the end of that verse, it says, let us hold fast our confession. We might say it this way, therefore, since this is who Jesus is, hold on to your confession of who he is. Our belief in Jesus as the Son of God and as the great high priest to confess Christ is to identify with him in a world that is hostile to him. We understand this in the context of this book. These readers were under severe pressure. They were under pressure of persecution. They were under pressure to abandon the faith and make life a lot easier for ourselves. This confession of Christ is always announced in the public realm. It's not something that we privately hold on to, but it's something we confess. To hold fast our confession then is to hold firmly to our trust in Christ, to pursue the kind of life that bears witness to our rest in Him. To hold fast to Christ is to certainly revere His teaching to emulate his obedience, to endure suffering in his name, to identify with his death, his resurrection, his reign, and his promised return. We we consider this our confession, our faith, what we trust in. And again, it's not a private matter. It is the faith we openly confess, even when there's persecution. It is a confession we make when we gather as a church at the Lord's table. As those who have confessed Christ in the waters of baptism then gather around that table and here confess we are the followers of the crucified Savior. To hold fast to our confession in Christ is a serious call. But warning us, warming us to that call is the truth of verse 15. Let us hold fast our confession of this great high priest. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So this is a beautiful truth. This priest who advocates for us in heaven is not some aloof priest who does not understand the human experience. He is God, very God, but he is also man, truly man. And so he understands. This is one of the utterly unique aspects of Christianity. Our Lord and Savior knows our human experience intimately. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. Notice that word sympathize there. The Greek word translated sympathize is not psychological in meaning. That is, it's not merely that Jesus feels bad for us or that he feels our pain. I suppose on one level we could say he certainly does that. But the Greek word means that our great high priest actively comes to our aid and helps us in our helplessness. 
You can imagine going into surgery and the surgeon doesn't care about you. He's just aloof and cold and going to get the job done. Even though it may not affect his work, how we love to see a warm smile. The sense that I've got your back. I'm here for you. Jesus is that kind of priest. He says, I get you, and I've got you. I've been there. I'm not God in heaven, isolated from your experience, but I have taken on flesh, and I know your experience, and I'll come to your aid. He bears the weight of our temptation to sin as one who in every every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now this does not mean, of course, that Jesus faced every temptation we do. He faced no temptation related to being a woman, being married, being elderly, for instance. But he fully understands the weakness of our flesh and the withering severity of the temptations that we face. He gets it. He is an understanding, compassionate, and knowledgeable priest. Well, I might ask the question at this point, but if, if he never sinned, if he is without sin, how can he understand our temptations? The odd answer that we really come to recognize is the truth is that he understands them better than we do. He understands them to a depth that we've never experienced. He was not less tempted because he was sinless, but faced deeper temptation because he never yielded. Think of it in these terms. There's a mugger who takes and has a a stick and takes on two people on the street, a wooden club. The first victim looks at the club, looks at the mugger, and says, here's my wallet. Yields very quickly, very easily. The next one says, you're not taking anything from me, and stands up to this mugger who beats him to a pulp, and both of them, almost to the inch of their life, finally the mugger gets up, walks away without anything. Which of those two victims has understood the strength of the mugger? It's clearly not the first one that yielded very quickly. It's the second one who fought to an inch of his life. That second one, so to speak, an analogy, is Jesus. He fought every temptation until it fled. There is no one here in this auditorium today or anyone on this earth that can say that. We yield at a certain place. At a certain point, we give in. Jesus never did. He was without sin, and so he totally understands the temptation. Now, as Jesus stands as our advocate, as our high priest, he does not get us off the hook. We should not think in those terms. Sometimes we hear, you need a good lawyer, and what's really kind of being said is you need somebody to help you get off the hook. Somebody to help you get away with what you did wrong. Don't read that into Jesus' work as a priest. 
He passes into the presence of God having died in the sinner's place to pay the penalty of our crimes. He is the good high priest in the sense that he has paid the full cost of sin. He's not getting us off the hook. He's paid the price. So as he passes into the presence of God, he stands there before the throne in our behalf with a total understanding of our frailty and also, as we sang here earlier today, if you caught it, satisfying the wrath of God. This truth then pleads for the next response, which we find in verse 16, and that is that we must draw near to the throne of grace. This makes so much sense as we understand who Jesus is and that we must hold fast our confession of this one who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Verse 16, secondly, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a call to consciously enter the presence of God in prayer. How are we to approach God's throne? We're to approach in prayer with confidence. We do that individually. We do that corporately. We did that today as Pastor Paul brought us into the presence of the Lord with confidence, with boldness, coming before his throne and making our requests as a church known at his feet today. So we come as individuals to the throne of grace. Now, we come with confidence not because we find confidence in ourselves. Our confidence is in what Christ, our great high priest, has done. When I walk across a bridge with confidence, it's not because I'm confident in myself. I'm confident in the bridge, in the one who made it, that it's going to get me across the river. And so we come with that kind of confidence. He is absolutely trustworthy. And so I come with confidence into the presence of the Father. And oh, that throne. We think of the centuries of time that God provided the approach to that, through that tabernacle into the holiest place and the awesomeness of approaching God there over centuries of time. All of that preparing God's people for now the fact that you and I can walk right into the Holy of Holies and lay our requests before Him and seek His help in prayer. It's an awesome thought. And by all rights, we should enter into that throne room of the universe and say, I am in way over my head. I am undone here. But in that glorious throne room, Jesus stands with welcoming arms and says, Come, I've got you covered. Because of his sacrificial death, justice has been served, and now over that awesome throne hangs a banner, so to speak, that says the throne of mercy and of grace. That's not just important for when we enter into the presence of the Lord, but we find here actually that phrase that says, let us draw near, is in the present tense in the original language, which simply means to keep on drawing near. 
Keep coming to this throne of grace. It is available today. So let us keep entering the throne room and seeking God's grace and mercy in our time of need. This is an offer. This is there before us to grasp. And I I may speak, indeed certainly do, to some today who say, I've not confessed Christ as my Lord and Savior. I would not stand with Him against persecution or against anybody that was tempting me uh, that way. I, I, I would not identify with Christ at this place in my life. Let me say to you, we're so thankful that you're here with us. I hope you come back and hear the rest of Hebrews and what Christ has done. But let me say to you, you must grasp this today. You desperately need a good priest. Whether you understand it or not, you need this priest. And one is available. But you must throw your trust upon him and indeed confess his name as Lord and Savior. He did not mess around with us and tell us, just come close to me, I like you, everything will be fine. He said, you're going to walk in a hostile world that put me on a cross and they might want to put you on one. There was no fooling around. He said, take up your cross and follow me. But as we do that, as we come to recognize that he is this great high priest, we come to put our trust and our confidence in him, we can know that through that process, he will bring us into the presence of God. And this is a unique teaching of Christianity, the privileged blessing of God's people to enter into his very presence. As we stand before God, the only thing we should really experience is fear, dread fear. But Jesus provides reconciliation as the great high priest to reconcile us to the Father, to come between us and Him, and through the imputation of His blood in our place, we're reconciled to God. And so there's a call for you to consider, to turn from sin, to trust Him, to confess with your mouth that He is Lord and believe in your heart that He is the risen, reigning Savior. I pray that you'll respond to that call upon your life. There's a great high priest. Will you trust Him? For those of us who have and do confess Christ. And though we know we're weak in the faith, we believe we would stand and say, I identify with Christ even in the face of persecution. The question that arises so naturally from the text is, why do we so weakly, W-E-A-K, why do we so weakly and so infrequently run to the throne of grace? What keeps us from approaching that throne? I think it would prove sanctifying to each of us as the followers of Christ to come up with an answer there. To really think about that. Is it spiritual apathy? Just a coldness toward Christ that keeps me from His throne room? Or maybe it's really unbelief and a growing distrust in Him that He truly hears that He truly understands, that He really is there for me. 
I think the author would say to us very directly, hold fast to your confession and show that you are holding fast to that confession by coming to his throne regularly. Or maybe it's self-dependent distraction with life. I trust myself, I get things done, I handle my own life. And I really don't think as much as I should about the need that I have to be supplied by Christ. Or maybe it's sin. Maybe it's the struggle with sin that, that embarrasses you, that makes your heart cold, that keeps you from this throne of grace. I, what it, whatever it is, let's work to define it and say, He is this great high priest. There is a bold access that He has provided. Why do I not go there as I should? As we struggle with sin and struggle to hold fast our confession, let us find encouragement in the Scriptures today. That Jesus understands our temptation. He understands the frailty of our humanity. No one else may understand your struggle with sin. But He does. And He is there. He is positioned at the Father's right hand, interceding for us and welcoming us to find grace there in our time of need. Yes, in this life, we sometimes need a good doctor, a good lawyer, a good mechanic. But let's rejoice, believer. We have a great high priest whose ministry is active, it is effectual, it is understanding, and it will never cease for all eternity. Let us resolve then to run to this throne, to do what we've been called to do here, to let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, to come into his presence holding fast our confession that Jesus is the great and final high priest and savior. Let's go now before this throne in prayer. And Father, we come into your presence through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in the promise of your word to us here. And we pray, Father, in behalf of those who are separated from Christ, who through sin have shown their identity in rebellion against you, which is where we've all been. Father, I pray that you would open their blind eyes to see what Christ has done to pay the cost of sin that he is the great advocate before your throne. For those of us who know you, we come again, Father, and we plead that you would hear the cry of our heart, that we would grow in faith, that we would grow in the likeness of Christ, that we would grow increasingly tired and disgusted by sin. I pray that we would continue to lay aside the fleshly desires for self, and for pleasures that are inappropriate, for greed in our life, and for the lack of love with which we live. God, may it grow increasingly ugly to us. And I pray now before your throne that you would be doing a work in each of our hearts to draw close to you, to cling to our confession, and to enter into the throne room of grace and to seek you in our need. Father, we come before you weak and humbled and mindful, Lord, 
of our, of our necessity, that we need Christ. I pray that you'd meet us in that need today and that as a church we would grow in faith, grow in holiness, and that we would continue to shine as light in a dark world. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.